I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hi there. Welcome to the show. This is Once Upon a Gene, and I'm your host, Effie Parks. If you're new here, welcome. I hope you've had a chance to look through, listen through the entire back catalog. If you have any questions, please message me anytime. There have been some incredible guests who have inspired so many people to start their own foundations, do advocacy in their local community for a playground, for change in their school, like whatever you can imagine, people have taken action by listening to someone else's story. So I hope you enjoy it. Summertime is coming up. I'm getting a little nervous. I don't have childcare yet. Is anyone with me there? But I'm super excited. June 22nd, 23rd and 24th, I'm flying my whole family across the country, which is also scary, to go to the first in-person CTNMB1 conference in the United States. And I can't wait to see so many familiar faces. Our kids are also going to be participating in a natural history study, which is very cool. They're going to be doing blood draws from Simon's and Combined Brain. So if you're a part of Combined Brain, go check it out because they're doing a roadshow. And I'm pretty sure you'll be able to just come to our location and get a blood draw for your disorder too. You don't have to be a part of the CTNMB1 thing. So check it out. Anyways, today, oh my gosh, today we get to talk to one of my personal friends, actually. She lives here in Seattle with me. I met her on Twitter a couple of years ago, and then we finally met in person at a Starbeezy, and I just adore her so much. And her children, uh, her and her husband are both scientists, and they have labs here at Seattle Children's, and they have twins who are just as adorable as you could imagine. She's an amazing mom, and she studies how genes influence brain development and how those processes malfunction to cause neurodevelopmental disorders. She's got a lot of cool stuff going on that she's going to talk about in the episode, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with the amazing Kimberly Aldinger. Oh, hello, Kim. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Effie. It's so nice to be here. <laughs> yes. You know, we've been trying to make this happen forever, which is kind of the age old story, but it's finally happening, even if it is a Saturday morning where we like kicked our families out of our rooms. This is a true story. It's a true story. Yeah. I love you so much. You're my personal friend and sort of neighbor. You live, you know, across the water from me. And I remember when I met you on Twitter yep. and was like, oh, my gosh, she's here and she's a scientist. I'm going to be your best friend. And then we met at Starbucks. So let's start at the beginning, Kim, when we met on Twitter. And what were we both doing there? Well, I think I had joined Twitter, science Twitter, 
basically, because I'm a scientist and a rare mom. And it's been a little bit of a challenge of trying to figure out how I fit in that space. And I've been in the rare disease world on the science side for 20 years. And to have a child, I really didn't know how to navigate that space as a parent. And when I stumbled upon you on Twitter and the breadth and depth of what Once Upon a Gene was providing with resources for foundations and what to do, how to navigate the special needs community or what resources, I really was amazed that, again, you live down the street. I was like, oh my God, this is sort of what I've been looking for in a way to sort of connect with the community without having a specific disease focus because there's so much overlap and so much information to share and to build on um, from people who understand the parent perspective. And so it was a real breath of fresh air and a true sigh of relief to recognize that you live just down the street figuratively. And we had that opportunity to meet. So I was so thrilled um, to be able to have that connection with you. Oh, my gosh. That, like, seriously makes me want to cry. I'm so glad we found each other. And I would say the same thing to you, you know, on my end of finding parents that are not only close to me, but who have the brain that you have and who have the expertise and the unique sort of perspective as a scientist coming in. Right. And then understanding my world as as a rare disease parent. So I find it as a sigh of relief when there are, are professionals like you who get it. And I love what you said about how we overlap and build, like not disease specific, because that is just glaringly true. And I think that we all need one another because sure, our populations are so small, but it also just widens our idea, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that even, you know, there the connection with Ford and Grayson are, they're very different and have different genetic changes and different needs and different capabilities, but they're both the similar age and they're both in wheelchairs and they both have G-tubes and they both sometimes have seizures. And I think it was just being able to connect on that level too, that even though it feels like Grayson is a one of a kind, that he's not. And there are different features that or challenges that he faces that you get and that other parents that have children with those particular needs also understand and that we can learn from and support each other in that way. Totally. One of the best days, we shared a day at the Seattle Zoo. You brought your two kids. I brought my two kids. Our husbands were there. And that was the first time I had had an outing like that for real, where like my kid uses a feeding tube. We, he uses a pump. Grayson uses a feeding tube. You use gravity feeds. We both had to stop at some yep. point and feed our kids in these different ways. And it was just like, oh, yeah, I'll occupy the girls while you hold this. And you watch Ford really fast while I get all of his crap out. And it was just so... No, no communication even necessary to like have each other's back and to also just feel so normal, even just like, you know, Ford vomits all the time because it's just part of his thing. And so after he eats, you know, we were walking down, I was walking down the sidewalk, he was rolling down and he just like projectile vomited near a bench where someone was sitting. And I mean, it was just hilarious, like the horror on her face of why I would bring a sick child out in public when it's not, he's not sick. Yeah. And you you were just like, okay, catch up. And it was just like, 
it was so liberating to just like not give any cares at all and just sort of be normal with another family in a public setting. Yeah, we need to do that more. <laughs> we do. We need to know about your family, actually, because we're just talking about this, these beautiful kids of yours. So tell us about Chloe and Grayson. Chloe and Grayson are seven years old now. I can't believe how time flies, but they're fraternal twins. So same age, same um, birthday, same pregnancy. But other than that, they're wildly different. So they were born early. I had a surprise twin pregnancy, was not expecting twins whatsoever, and here they were. But the pregnancy was totally normal until it wasn't. And I went into preterm labor twice and was on bed rest, which created lots of challenges um, just to sort of navigate my professional life. But luckily, you know, I work at a place that my all of my peers are pediatricians and so understand from that perspective. But then they were both in the NICU and Grayson actually looked like he was doing really great and he was on a trajectory towards coming home shortly. And then he just wasn't right. And there wasn't anything specific that, but the nurses kept saying, he's kind of fussy. We can't console him. We don't really know what the concern is or what's happening. He sort of has a low grade temperature, but not really, you know, like a hundred, not like a blazing fever. And they just couldn't figure things out. And so that was over the weekend. And I was actually really good about not spending all of my time in the NICU. So they limit the amount of time that you can actually spend with the infants. And because I had never had surgery before and had an emergency C-section with Grayson, I needed to heal myself also. And so I only spent a couple hours a day and then just communicated with the, the nurses um, so that I had that time to recuperate myself, which I think it was really valuable. And when I showed up on Monday and we were doing, I was like, Let, we'll do the kangaroo care where you put the baby on your chest. And he pushed up, which for a baby who has been in the NICU for 40 days about, and shouldn't have that ability, shouldn't have that strength in his arms. And then he kind of recoiled in. And so the nurse kind of looked at him and thought, oh, well, maybe he's having a bowel movement. We checked his diaper. That seemed to be the answer. And changed his diaper, put him back in my chest, and he did the same thing. And I was like, this is weird. This is not right. Called the charge nurse, and indeed, he was having seizures. So full-on tonic-clonic seizures that put him on this completely different, unexpected surprise trajectory where now all of the NICU staff were coming, sticking him in a mobile incubator that we could go down to look um, at what was happening in his brain because he was having these seizures and in the NICU. So there wasn't any clear trigger as to, you know, he didn't eat something funny or I don't, you know, something that could have happened to him. It had to be something happening inside. And so that sort of really started the trajectory of what was going on with Grayson. And that led to, he was in status epilepticus. He was on so many medications that he needed machines to help breathing support. And we looked at his brain and it looked like his brain cells were actively dying. Like perhaps he had some biochemical effect going on. And it was because of that, that we ended up going to children's, actually transferring from the private um, hospital to Children's Hospital in order to actually have whole exome sequencing because 
if we could find an answer genetically um, for what might be happening with the active changes in his brain, then that might provide um, a treatment and a resolution for what was happening with him. So that's Grayson's story in a nutshell from the beginning. Yep. And there's Chloe. And there's Chloe. And so Chloe didn't have any signs and symptoms of having any challenges, but because she was his twin, she had a brain MRI at the same time when Grayson was having his seizures. And lo and behold, I had this hunch that we were going to find something. And that's exactly what happened. And she had evidence of having had an intraventricular hemorrhage, which is part of what I've done during my day job is to review brain imaging results. And so I could look at her brain and say, oh, this looks like the brain of a 28-week-old preemie who's had an intraventricular hemorrhage. She was born later. The twins were born at 33 weeks. But my first preterm labor was at that 28 weeks. Um, And so I'm really confident that she was the one sort of initiating that effect during the pregnancy. And so then that led down the path of what the risks or potential outcomes might be um, as as Chloe developed. So here was our healthy child that had some evidence of projecting a forward path that would not be completely um, without without challenges as we're trying to grapple with the real more you know life-threatening circumstances that her twin brother were, was facing at the same time. What a lovely introduction to motherhood. <laughs> yeah. So I'm very pragmatic. So it's kind of a wonder that I can talk about this without the sort of waterworks following behind it. But I think that's partly how I can deal with these sort of challenges that have popped up unexpectedly. And, you know, nobody, I think you've said this before, this is the best club that nobody wants to join or something. You have some phrase that sort of speaks to that. And that's sort of how I can sort of encapsulate things and and move forward is to, to sort of take the emotion out and put it into a box and, and, keep moving forward because our kids need it and we need it for our own lives too. Yeah, totally understand that. And it is definitely one of your superpowers in a way, (laughs) right? Like you even did it in the very beginning when almost no parent's going to leave that room and you realized, actually, I do have to take care of myself. This makes sense. Yep. And so while some might argue that it's going ice and maybe disassociating, it's also mandatory because you can get stuck so easily in in these situations, in this extreme scenario of parenting kids like ours, that you have to figure out ways to accept things for what they are and keep moving in a way. Yeah. But also find that time to let it sort of marinate, right? Like you have to find this balance of really living in it and then learning from it. Yeah. And Scott and I definitely had have had those times where, you know, we sit on the couch and we've cried and been in that woe is me, how did this happen um, sort of place. And so we do take the time to do that because that's really important and valuable too. And, you know, the grief can be overwhelming because not only is there so much of it at that initiating sort of time when you recognize that there was something wrong. And with Grayson, it was it was really sudden and really traumatic um, in the way that it presented. And in comparison, Chloe, I'll talk a little bit 
about what happened with Chloe. So because she was sort of our typically developing child, so we knew that she had on her brain MRI some suggestions that her brain might have some challenges as as it was developing. It's hard to predict what the outcome actually is. And she wasn't having any clinical outcomes that would lead us to believe there was something really significant about her development not proceeding the way that it should. She, you know, met all of her milestones. It took her a little bit longer, but that's not uncommon with twins in general. And so the one feature that Chloe did have was a lazy eye. And that's also not uncommon in preemies where about 30% of preemies do have a lazy eye. And so with recognizing that, we made an appointment with the ophthalmologist at Children's Hospital. And of course, the wait times are longer than you want them to be. And the twins were born in March and the ophthalmology appointment wasn't until November. And so when we actually showed up to the ophthalmology appointment expecting, oh, she has a lazy eye, maybe we'll get a patch to help you know, maybe the muscles um, sort of correct themselves or what was happening. And we went in and she had a series of tests. One test actually measures the signal that connects your eyeballs to your brain and how that signal is transferring the information. And that test led us to the potential diagnosis of Chloe's not going to be able to see. And I would say that that was actually the most traumatic event that we had, even more so than what was happening with Grayson and his status epilepticus, because it seemingly came out of nowhere. So we went to this appointment thinking that, oh, there's a lazy eye, we're going to stick a big sticker on her eyeball, and um, that'll sort of work itself out. And instead, we're sitting in this appointment and basically being told that your child is blind, they're never going to see. And so that was so much more traumatic. I know that with the intraventricular hemorrhage, there was the risk of cerebral palsy that was discussed. We did. I don't remember really discussing the impact that those same pathways that contribute or that can contribute to the presentation of cerebral palsy are also really important for how the brain and eyes talk to each other. And I really wasn't thinking about that. And so it it came totally out of left field for us that here was our typically developing child in comparison to her brother um, who had this traumatic event and she wasn't going to be able to see. Yeah, I think anyone can completely understand why this felt like more of a blow, right? Like you have this little hope still over here, like, oh, one of my children is going to have this ideal life that I expected them to have. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be all of those things that we're all going to get to experience that are quote unquote normal right there. And then to just like get kicked down the stairs. That's a lot. Yeah, that's exactly what it felt like. And it's still, I mean, she, Chloe is doing amazingly. And she, every time we go to the ophthalmologist, they said, you know, they're like, she's doing so great. It was like, yes, because you expected that she was going to be blind and she can, she actually has some vision and she's learning to read and she's learning to write and she can navigate her world. We think that it's really hard to estimate what she can actually see because it requires To determine what somebody can see, they have to be able to communicate what that is. And one of Chloe's challenges is with language and being able to communicate. And so it wasn't until her most recent eye exam that she was actually able to provide feedback about what you can see and and what she can't. We think she doesn't really have any depth perception and that she sort of sees out of, like if you were to put two 
paper towel tubes up to your eyes and look out of them that that's kind of the the view of her world. Chloe's amazing and she's <laughs> a super fashionista and she is so good with her cane and getting around her environment while also being social and involved at the same time. You know, I think about watching her and my daughter together and it's just like a piece of her and she's so integrated with it just naturally. It's really, really impressive. And she hates that cane. We try so hard, um, <laughs> you know, to to make her use it. And it's really amazing how she does navigate her world. And it's really evolved over time, too. She's adapted over time on her own, where if there is a change in terrain, so if there is carpet and then there's wood floor, she when she was when she was littler, when she was three, she would actually get down on the floor and feel whether or not there was a change in depth because she could just see that, recognize that there is a change in the type of flooring. So she doesn't do that very much anymore. And I think she has learned to adapt and she amazingly hasn't fallen down or bumped into things the way you might expect somebody who is visually challenged. Um, and I think she does use her cane well, but she it distinguishes her from her peers and she she really doesn't like that aspect of it. You know, now I think if your kid was in the NICU for 45 days, they would have had rapid genome sequencing 40 days before that. Exactly. Yeah. You did actually get whole exome sequencing for Grayson fairly quickly, especially thinking back to 2015, where it wasn't common, right? That's right. And it was very expensive at the time. So let's talk about what diagnosis you did or didn't get. And then I also want to bring back up Chloe because there's seven years later, still kind of like this odyssey that you're on. Yeah, we had that initial exome sequencing, rapid whole exome sequencing clinically, because we thought that there was some kind of biochemical event that had initiated those seizures. And so if we were able to find something, a gene that had known mutations was already linked to a biochemical treatment, then maybe that would be an answer for Grayson. And that wasn't the case. So the exome testing came back as negative. And so the exome only looks at 1% of all of the genes that make proteins. And the answer clinically was that they didn't find anything. And so, but part of what I do in my day job is to analyze exome sequencing. And so we were able to request the data from Grayson's report. So one of the things about when you have clinical exome sequencing is that there's two components. There's the exome sequencing, but there's also the, what are the clinical reasons why you're having this exome testing? And so for Grayson, that was seizures. And what that meant is that the exome test results are only going to be viewed through the lens of epilepsy. So they're only going to look for genes that are already known or already linked to epilepsy. And so what the result, a negative result meant was that they didn't find any genetic changes in any of the known epilepsy genes. But as you are well aware, Effie, there's so much, there's an explosion of data, um, especially in the genomic place that has accumulated even since 2016. And so I had requested the data and we put it through our research exome pipeline and there were a couple of de novo or brand new changes in Grayson, but nothing really jumped out to me. 
and I put it away, mostly because Grayson was having seizures and his seizures evolved. So he had those tonic-clonic and then at nine months old, he had infantile spasms. And then actually in the pandemic, they sort of evolved also to having um, focal discognitive seizures. And so really putting together all of his medical care, that was the primary focus since there wasn't really a genetic change that popped out as being potentially relevant or being able to explain what was happening with him. But I think it was, it was about 2019. So when he was about three years old, we met with our geneticist and she said, you know, there's been so much more information. We can request a reanalysis. So you can go back to the outfit that did the original clinical testing and said, can you look at this again? And so they don't actually do another test. They just look at the interpret of what, how they interpreted that information. And so there are many more genes that we have appreciated that are involved with epilepsy since 2016 to 2019. I know Ingo Helbig has like this really beautiful diagram or graph that he shows about the accumulation or the, the number of new epilepsy genes that were found. And so she initiated, our geneticist initiated that analysis. And then I, I said, oh yeah, I have those results on my computer. Let me go back and look at them. And so I went back and looked at them. And lo and behold, there is this gene called MAST4 that when I typed it into PubMed, which is the database that aggregates all of the scientific published literature, there was a paper that came out that said, oh yeah, we, we found some mutations in this MAST4 gene in a family. Not only that, there was also MAST1, which is de novo mutations, brand new mutations in MAST1, which is a family member of MAST4 that had recently been reported being associated with a developmental brain disorder, which ironically, I'm a, one of the co-authors on that paper. But so these sort of two pieces of information kind of co coincided. I called up our geneticist and she's, I said, I think I found the answer. And she said, well, I was actually going to call you tomorrow because the reanalysis came back and they also suggest that MAS4 is now this variant of uncertain significance based on this, primarily that one paper that had been reported in the literature linking MAS4 to epilepsy. Oh, I love that you found it first. <laughs> <laughs> or at least that's how we tell the story, right? <laughs> What did that feel like? I don't know. So Scott, so my husband was super excited about it. And he has a, a sort of endearing story that he tells because I was actually opening my computer, my laptop, sitting on the couch, drinking coffee and sort of mentioned it to him in that capacity. And so he has kind of been, a, a, I think, a more endearing story about how we found out in me telling him that I found the, the mutation. But the first thing you do is you Google it, right? Or in my case, I didn't Google, but I typed MAST4 into this database of all the published information and there wasn't a lot about it. And so that poses a very different challenge and a very different perspective from, from the scientific standpoint about what do you do next? So now you have a gene, but what do you do? Um, and so it's really helpful to know what the potential relationship is of the of the gene to what the clinical symptoms are, but when you don't have a history of information to look at, I think there were about 36 papers that were linked to this gene at that time. I think now there are about 60, but that means there's not a lot of information. And so we have a lot of groundwork to do to figure out what does this gene do? What is it not doing or what is it doing incorrectly to produce a phenotype? Of course, I then also 
entered MAST4 into Gene Matcher, which is dating myself, but I'm going to say match.com for genes, because when you find a new gene, somebody else may have also found that there were these genetic changes in one of their patients, but they could be anywhere around the world. So how do you find them? And so there is this database that you can enter the information and it will find if there are other people who also, other clinicians who also entered that same gene and then they connect you. And so that's what happened with MAST4. And so we were able to go from just Grayson to now just under 20 patients that we're aware of that might have genetic changes in some similar neurodevelopmental challenges which provide the evidence that this is a real connection between this gene and the potential mutations and in the effect on human development. Which is just like a dream come true for a nerdy scientist like <laughs> <Yeah>. you. <laughs> Recently, you actually got your own lab. Yes. And you've kind of changed directions a little bit on what you were studying and thought you would study forever to what you're kind of doing now. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's absolutely true. So my background is in brain development and genetics. So I have a PhD in neurobiology, um, and then I've mostly spent my time in a human genetics lab. So I already mentioned a bit about gene discovery. And then part of what I do is look at those genes and figure out how they're working or why they're not working and what that means for brain development. Mostly a particular part of the brain called the cerebellum, which we know mostly is related to motor coordination and sensory integration. It's actually the it's known as a little brain, and it actually has more neurons than any other place in the brain. So there are more brain cells in the cerebellum than in any other part of the brain, but it's not as well studied as the sort of upper cerebral cortex part of the brain. And so that's what I've studied for lots of years. But this MAS4 gene is not really related to that brain region, um, and it is related to epilepsy. And so we started to look at where it was acting and what it was doing. And so a little baby project on MAST4 was born. And thanks to the American Epilepsy Society, we actually received a um, a small grant to start working on that. And hopefully um, I submitted a small NIH grant to also support that work. And hopefully that's going to be funded also. So this might develop into a slightly bigger project in my lab, but there is that sort of challenge with for 20 years, I've studied something in particular that I know much better um, and doesn't have a direct connection to what might be happening with Grayson. And so I maintain some of that research, but there's this new you know, sort of exciting feature um, that I think about from a very different perspective. And as I've sort of been starting my brand new research lab as of August. So that's been a really exciting adventure to start this year. Yes, it's very cool. And I'm so excited for you. And I can see like this new energy in you. And I love seeing your face on panels. And I listened to this webinar that was so informative. And you're so good at presenting. And it was so digestible. And I think that that also comes from your perspective as being a parent of really just knowing how to explain things. I do have to say that being a parent and a scientist has changed my focus in several ways, not even just the science that we're working on right now, but also how I think about things. I know that when I'm sitting in a room or in these days at, on Zoom, also listening to other scientists or, or 
clinicians present their work, I think about it from two different perspectives and sometimes they collide, right? So sometimes the questions that I have might be more scientifically focused. Sometimes the questions I have might be really more from a parent perspective. And sometimes I can't actually tell the difference. There's a little bit of, of overlap between the way that I'm thinking about them. And I think that one of the things that I try to do is actually always bring the parents and the patients into the figuratively into the room for the scientists who might be working on a really interesting gene from their perspective and they're really thinking about that biology and have not had the connection with the patients or kept up to date with some of the the literature and might be presenting some outdated anecdotes i would say about some of the clinical relationships to the really deep biology that they're explaining. And so I hope that that does make an impact on both sides, both from the parent and family perspective, as well as to inform some of their scientists and remind them those who don't engage as much for many different reasons. Sometimes it's just accessibility with the, the affected communities that to remind them that they're there and that's really the power and importance upon what they're doing. Yes. And thank you so much for saying that. One of my questions was going to be, and maybe that's the answer or part of the answer was, what do you want scientists like you to do better? And I know that that's such a passion for so many of us in the rare disease community is to incorporate our families and the faces of these people who live with this disease from the very beginning and not just think of this as the gene and think of this as the science that you're going to do, but to really kind of see the big picture in how this is affecting people and what might actually really be meaningful to them and not you just being a scientist doing science for science reasons because of your curiosity, but to really kind of think about the difference that it could make on someone's life. I think that's so valuable. And I think that I think that there still is value for doing some science for science sake. I think that's part of how we're able to move things so much farther, so much faster nowadays in this I've heard it sort of noted as a sort of scientific renaissance that we're embarking now because of the information that we're able to accumulate. But to really partner with the families who are living with these conditions day by day is so valuable. I think that the NIH has really recognized this. The parents and the you know, in the rare disease community are really driving the research and the effort that happens. I think that when you're in the lab, it's really easy to get bogged down in the specific tiny little details of what you're looking at and thinking or having a tagline that this will help patients one day. And maybe it's really basic research. And so maybe that will lead to benefit. But what are the communities, the patient communities really advocating for today, right now, what will help their life? Because there are so many different aspects of life that are impacted when an individual has one of these rare diseases. And that evolves over time also as development happens, or there are some conditions that are life-limiting, some are not, some of these neurodevelopmental disorders are not life-limiting, and that poses very different challenges about when you're thinking about a child who has a neurodevelopmental disease when they're five years old, but they're going to live in typical lifespan, that, that child is going to become an adolescent, that child is going to become an adult, and those pose very different challenges. And so I think that there are efforts, and I'm really grateful that there are efforts 
to look at those different aspects of life and development as well, because that's where the trajectory is going for many of our our kids who don't have a, a degenerative disease, but that are expected to have the full amount of their life to live. Mm. Yes. It's such an interesting balance. And I don't even think it was probably that long ago when it would have been completely unheard of and quite absurd to have invited the idea of the patient caregiver situation into the lab. Yeah. And I think recognizing that everyone in this situation is a human being and not kind of separating it out in the way that it has been done in the past is only enriching everything. Absolutely. I think that the value that the patients and families bring cannot be understated, really. So that I think that historically, when families would come to the lab to look at the research that was happening, it was more of a show and tell um, and less of an an active engagement and reciprocal communication and participation. And I think it's so powerful that there's been that movement to, to not only inform, but to invite the what the challenges are or what the needs are for the patients and the families and to be able to inform what's happening on the research side. I think that really can't be understated. Do you remember that woman, Catherine Alexander, that was on the show a long time ago? Yes. Her baby was the fir- the youngest baby to ever get treated for SMA1. And she said that it was so strange. Obviously, her experience is vastly different than many others, right? But that doctors and researchers would show up when they knew she had an appointment or whatever because they just couldn't believe all of this work they'd done, you know, their whole life, like went into a baby. Yeah. And the baby was okay. Yeah. And like they want to see this kid and know how he's doing and they follow him just because it's it's so profound. It is. It's really incredible to see the development of what is happening. You know, SMA, we're all standing on the shoulders of SMA right now, really. Um, and the technology, the antisense oligonucleotide therapies and the gene therapies um, that have been so successful for many of these individuals with this debilitating disease. And for me as a scientist, I've never really thought about that space. Being in neurodevelopment, those were the disorders that you didn't treat. You could treat the seizures, but it's only recently that we're more now able to think about using these strategies and these technologies to treat the gene and treat the entirety of the child. And so it's usually not just seizures, that are one only one component where, you know, if you look at Grayson, he's in a wheelchair, so he doesn't have the ability to walk. He loves to walk. So with he's in his great in his gait trainer, that's, you know, one of his favorite places to be. You know, if there is the ability to treat the gene, then maybe that would have been benefit on his ability to walk or stand or hold himself up or be able to engage. He has three, he's nonverbal, but he has three words. He says, hi, very clearly. He says, yeah. And then he says, all done. So when he's ready to go to sleep, he says, all done. And those are, those are basically his three words. But communication is really one of the biggest challenges when you have a seven-year-old whose abilities are more representative of what you expect from a six-month-old. Communication is really the big challenge to be able to figure out what his needs are. And that's not unlike other 
rare neurodevelopmental diseases where there are similar challenges in that capacity. And so even for Grayson, we're now thinking about, can we treat this um, or can we work towards that effort? Would an antisense oligonucleotide work even not even if even if it doesn't work for him necessarily, would it work for other children like him? And to be able to think about that from a scientific perspective, um, not only as a parent, is like like completely eye-opening in a completely different world. And I really am only starting to think about that be after going to Global Genes, after really in-person connecting with other parents who are on this journey and moving in that direction. And it was really something that I had never thought about before outside of the academic perspective of, oh, it's going to take 10 years in order to do some basic science that might sometime eventually maybe never get to a treatment. Yeah, I think what you just said there is kind of like the crux of everything, right? The idea to never stop digging and to not get blockaded by, oh, it's not for my kid. Because I think that, especially with the kids who are kind of on that interesting age range, you know, where our kids are seven and above, like those parents, including myself, were told there is literally nothing you can do. This has already happened in his brain, blah, 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 blah. And there's a moment where you just go, you take it and you think, OK, that's that's our story. But then things start moving. Things start happening. Yeah. Scientists start tinkering. Parents start burning down buildings. Yeah. And things start happening. And it's this newfound hope, right? It is. It travels so quickly and it's real. It's amazing. It's happening. This isn't this isn't fiction. This isn't science fiction. This is real and it's happening and kids are getting help. And even if it isn't your kid getting like a 180 that you think that you would always wished for, it's going to be the next kid. And that is just as beautiful. Absolutely. Kim, you're amazing. And I am so grateful for you. And I'm so honored to have you as my friend. And I know you're helping so many of my friends with your scientist brain on their boards. And you do so much outside of, you know, your job and for Grayson and Chloe. And I just hope you know how valuable you are. And I also just really love your perspective and I'm excited for future and rare disease for sure, but also to watch yours. Thanks, Effie. I'm so pleased to be able to share our story and really connecting with other families. That really brings me, I would say, the greatest amount of joy to be able to help connect and explain some of the science and I think I'm learning so much more from those parents in, in this community. I feel like I'm learning more than what I'm providing, but it's really a pleasure. And I'm so glad that we're friends and have this connection. And thank you for giving me this space to, to be able to share a little bit of our, our story here. Totally. And we'll be probably hearing more from Kim on the show. I'll have all the links to contacting Kim in the show notes. And I'm so grateful that you are my guest today. I can't wait to share a conversation and uh, go follow Kim Aldinger on Twitter. Mast one through L five is in the race. Thanks, Kim. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story, or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. 
Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.